0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have on as our guest, Dr. Tracy Bayardo. Dr. Bayardo is a licensed psychologist who provides therapy to children, teens, college students, and young adults. She specializes in treating eating disorders. She also treats mood and anxiety disorders, trauma, and grief that often co-occur with eating disorders. In addition to treating eating disorders, she is passionate about helping youth decrease depression, anxiety, and behavioral issues through play therapy and other creative interventions in conjunction with talk therapy. Welcome, Dr. Bayardo. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm excited to have on Dr. Tracy Bayardo. Welcome, Dr. Bayardo. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I think the listener would be just interested in hearing a little bit about your approaches to eating disorder therapy and how someone might think about engaging in therapy in the context of an eating disorder. It would be great to just hear kind of the process that someone goes through.
1: Sure. So I'm currently providing treatment for eating disorder therapy in my private practice, which these days looks like telehealth dominantly until things get back to normal when we are no longer social distancing. So in private practice, what I typically provide clients is weekly individual therapy, which is 60 minutes, in addition to possibly providing parenting support training sessions if I'm working with someone who is a minor. So anyone under age 18, I do strongly encourage parenting support sessions in addition to that individual therapy for the client, and eating disorder therapy, from my perspective, really looks at kind of tackling some of the peripheral challenges kind of interwoven within the disorder. So I think it's quite common that clients will ask, you know, in an initial consultation for some support and help with, you know, decreasing body image satisfaction or figuring out ways to find peace with food or normalize eating, which is absolutely important. But I, typically we'll explain from the forefront that while those are important factors of eating disorder treatment, that's not all we will be doing. So I really do my best to explain that really long lasting recovery from eating disorder treatment really looks like really delving into some of the core issues that might be co-occurring with eating disorders. So that might look like Dysfunctional family patterns within one's household or even within one's marriage that dates back to childhood experiences with food or, you know, with interpersonal relationship issues, as well as looking at factors of trauma, depression, and anxiety. So, that is quite a broad explanation of what eating disorder treatment might look like. But in other words, I'm really passionate about assisting clients with looking at different facets of their identity that goes beyond body image, that goes beyond their relationship with food, while still providing special attention to those truly hallmark problem areas when it comes to eating disorders.
0: Got it. And around what age would you say someone might seek out this type of therapy or treatment for eating disorders? What do you usually see?
1: Sure you know, I, in addition to treating eating disorders, I do work with people that don't have eating disorders that want to work on social anxiety and depression and, and trauma and generalized anxiety tend to be some of my focal points. And I do work predominantly with adolescents, college students and young adults. And so therefore, you know, my website is pulling for clients looking for a therapist that works with that age group. So I say that to demonstrate that, you know, I. In addition to working with eating disorders, I also work with youth with issues unrelated to eating disorders as well. And so a common age group that I receive consultation requests from tend to be adolescents. And so I see that as twofold specifically for my practice. So for one, I specialize in child therapy, which includes adolescents. And then we also are seeing a peak in dieting behavior for looking at the statistics of individuals seeking support for eating disorder treatment during adolescence. And so I I think that those two factors really are specific reasons why someone in their adolescence might be seeking treatment for an eating disorder in my practice. And I also do see an array of individuals that are in their young adult years or middle adulthood years in my practice, but I do see quite a need for adolescents to receive treatment for eating disorders. And how do you
0: approach a case if, say, you know, the parents really want their adolescent or teen to be in treatment, but the individual themselves are not that interested in moving forward with therapy or
1: treatment? That's a great question. And that's something that I will get commonly asked by the parent In the initial consultation, right? You know, I I see this problem with my child. They're not eating at school. They're having a hard time finishing meals at dinner at home. They're skipping breakfast, you know, so on and so forth. But my child doesn't want treatment, or my child thinks that this is something that quote unquote only crazy people do. And I do get a lot of parents struggling with what they're seeing as problem issues that are not congruent with what their child is seeing as issues. And so, I typically will offer a free consultation initially with the parent and explain the difference between privacy versus confidentiality where parents that are seeking therapy for their child that's under 18 technically holds all confidentiality but that doesn't mean that I am going to divulge everything in session with that parent in a way that just Completely erases and eliminates trust and respect and, and rapport with the client and myself. So, typically, what I'll let the parents know is that I will not only offer them that free consultation and explain that privacy looks like, you know, really respecting the boundaries between the therapist and their child, but also really making intentional check ins with the parents that's collaborative. So, what that might look like is Having an explicit conversation in therapy between the child and myself, you know, if there is a need to update the parent, when I will do that, how the child prefers that that's done, do they want to update the parent first and have me check in during a later phone call and assure that that was done? Would they rather me just update the parent? Do they want to do it together? And allowing that child, especially an adolescent, have that control and that freedom from the forefront. I typically view as kind of like the quote-unquote secret sauce of, you know, really allowing that that person, especially if they're a teenager, feel that they have power in that therapeutic relationship and that I am not going to just divulge everything to the parent. I also explain that that doesn't mean I keep secrets of any sort. I actually make that a very firm standpoint in consultations that I view secret keeping to actually kind of perpetuate dysfunctional relationships Within families, and that, you know, there are still limits to confidentiality. And when we possibly get to that point, you know, I will let the child know, hey, you know, I do need to update mom or dad about X, Y, and Z, especially when it's an issue related to safety. But we also will collaborate on periodic check ins with the parent. So that way, you know, the child again feels that they have control and, If a parent feels during the consultation that that's not enough to convey to their teen or their child that this is going to be the way that we can kind of strategize on how to start therapy and and make therapy feel safe and comfortable, I'll also offer to have a separate conversation, of course, with the parent's consent about that therapeutic process that I just explained, that there's a difference between privacy and confidentiality and And we can kind of create that to be kind of like a quote unquote second consultation to help that child feel supported and and answer any questions that they may have.
0: Okay. What about if you're thinking about treatment of eating disorders? I'm sure there's often a nutritionist involved in the case. So, something that maybe would be helpful for me to understand about this type of treatment is where is the overlap between what a nutritionist and a therapist does or a psychologist does versus the differences between, you know, each each role and is both necessary?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a really great question. And I'm glad you asked that, because that typically is something that will come up early in the beginning phases of treatment. I come from a background of working in a hospital. And so that absolutely was a multidisciplinary approach of working with clinical directors, psychiatrists, dietitians, of course, therapists, mental health workers and nurses. And so it really is almost like viewing an elephant and having different hands on the elephant, so to speak, and having different expertise, you know, give their lens and their special, you know, approach to therapy. And so what I typically share with clients is that having a dietitian on board a registered dietitian will allow both the client and myself to plan treatment and to set goals and to see if those goals truly are working. And so a dietitian will help that individual understand what their ideal body weight is according to their body mass index, while also not just perseverating around this number in a way that clients with eating disorders often do, right? That's characterological of an eating disorder, right? Having an extreme fear of of weight gain is typical and quite common with eating disorders. And so dietitians can help clients reach nutrition therapy in a way that they're still tracking their weight in a way that typically is a blind weight, meaning the client doesn't necessarily know what their weight is because that could be extremely sugary. But the dietitian gets to hold that information and figure out kind of where their body is happy and their weight can be stabilized. So the dietitian, in other words, will help with physical stabilization, whereas I will help with psychological stabilization, which might look like finding behavioral challenges to avoid body checking or finding ways to set boundaries You know, at the family meal where there's constant body talk, ways to set limits with other individuals that are commenting on their body and and so on and so forth. Dietitians can absolutely do that as well and oftentimes do, but they have this special kind of focus on providing quantitative information for that client. What should their meals look like? Typically, they'll give them some sort of meal plan to follow with their knowledge and expertise around caloric intake and, and nutrition to, again, allow that body to physically stabilize from food restriction and binging and purging and figure out if their labs are looking okay. If there's any imbalances, the dietitian can help them seek medical support Whereas as a therapist, my job is really helping that individual heal from the psychological factors impacting their behavior, such as, of course, restricting food, binging food, purging food. Right. And you had mentioned earlier
0: on when we first started kind of talking about the other aspects that kind of happen in conjunction with eating disorders that emerge thinking about things like depression or anxiety. So I know it's bi-directional, but in terms of what you usually see, and, and I know it's a generalization, this thinking about, you know, what drives what? What tends to kind of bring on the eating disorder? Is it depression it is anxiety or does the eating disorder then bring on more of kind of a depression and anxiety picture?
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. When I get that question, because sometimes I will get that, oftentimes I should say I get that question in a consultation or at least in beginning sessions. And I think that question is really important because there is a lot of stigma around eating disorders. Many clients will say that their family doesn't get it and will say things like, well, why can't you just eat? Go ahead and and just try it. And the way I really try to help validate that client's experience is this would not be categorized as a psychological disorder if it was that simple if it was that easy. so to go back to your question I, I really try to explain the biopsychosocial model to clients, which is looking at biological factors, psychological factors, and social or cultural factors that play a role in eating disorders and and play a role in other mental health disorders right so if we're looking at depression, for example, from a biological perspective, you know looking at eating disorders as possibly being organic, that might look like specific issues related to brain chemistry. However, I would argue that it is much more common for there to be some sort of co-occurring issues such as having depression and anxiety in addition to having the eating disorder. And so I think it's a complex question to really look at, you know, what came first. With looking at substance abuse, for example, there are oftentimes individuals that kind of have this aha moment in therapy with working with their dietitian and working with their therapist and realizing that maybe their addiction to alcohol or cocaine was driven by their desire to curb hunger or to kind of check out and avoid having these obsessive thoughts about food. And for others, it's the opposite. They realized that the substance abuse came first and then that led to food restriction and that led to feeling good about the compliments they were getting about their body changing, right? So I would Going back to the initial question, I would argue that the answer to that is quite individual, and I I think it can go both ways depending on the client and, and their specific circumstances.
0: Right. I agree. It is kind of a bi directional thing and it kind of they can exist together and, you know, certain things drive other behaviors and behaviors drive other kind of mental health symptomatology. I know it's kind of hard and sometimes it's easier to think about kind of it in a specific case, but maybe thinking about, and I, every case is so different, but Maybe talking a little bit about themes that do come up in therapy quite often that you see, you know, in terms of issues over and over again related to eating disorder treatment or emergence of eating disorder.
1: Yeah, I would say one thing that I see quite common, and this is kind of regardless of age, right? So if I'm seeing a client who's adolescent, or if I'm seeing a client who's an adult, there typically tends to be a a clear kind of discomfort with talking about emotions within their family, their family of origin, right? So the family that raised them. And so a lot of times I'll see that this avoidance in emotions can lead to, you know, eating disorder behaviors kind of being their voice, their voice for feeling powerless or feeling helpless or feeling anxious without having that emotional expression within their family. And then oftentimes that will transfer and follow them in their other relationships and friendships, work relationships, their marriage. And typically what that will do is kind of rev up the eating disorder, which then might motivate them to seek treatment. So I, I would say definitely working on emotional expression, identifying emotions and exploring emotions is a key role that I play in serving individuals with eating disorders. And then one other thing that I noticed too within family dynamics is an issues when it comes to boundaries. So boundaries related to factors such as having too rigid boundaries where, you know, there are really extreme rules, rules about food, rules about what's right, rules about what's wrong, as well as kind of the opposite end of that spectrum where boundaries can be kind of looser and the individual grows up not not feeling secure about where they kind of stand in this world and and what what's okay and what's not okay and so helping individuals maintain healthy boundaries or establish healthy boundaries within their family is often another common goal that i have you know for individuals seeking therapy for an eating disorder okay and another question
0: that i was thinking of as you were talking is Do you approach the therapeutic process differently if you're treating an adolescent versus an adult who might be coming to you for either a new eating disorder or just a lifelong eating disorder that they're just seeking out treatment for now?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I would say that with my adolescence, given that well, I haven't worked with an adolescent that isn't working, that isn't living under the same roof of their family. So the fact that adolescents are living with their family, and they have access to their family, they rely on their family, they need them, I oftentimes will be actively including them in either weekly or monthly family sessions or parent support sessions. And that will help you know, establish healthy boundaries when it comes to meal support, as well as emotional support. And with adults, that absolutely is important as well, but it's not always available. So for some, they have cut ties with family that don't support their eating disorder recovery, or their boundaries, you know, don't include having, you know, mom or dad be part of therapy. That's that uh, the adult client has decided will we'll no longer be healthy for them. And so I definitely am client-centered in that, you know, decision, you know, in terms of including the family or not with my adult clients. But with adolescence, I absolutely encourage that as being a big change agent, you know, to help not only the client develop healthier behaviors with food, but for the family to also develop healthier patterns around food and, and emotional support. I mean, ideally, I think I would be doing that with adult clients as well. But, you know, for some adult clients, that that isn't always indicative as being a possibility. and And that might be because of trauma, family trauma, as well as families that just are not providing a healthy, supportive environment for that individual.
0: Okay. How long do you usually think about the length of treatment for somebody?
1: You know, that's... That's a really good question. I think that is quite complex when it comes to eating disorders because eating disorders definitely will require physical stabilization when it comes to either maintaining their weight or restoring their weight at a healthy number. And when individuals aren't there and they're having a really hard time following their meal plan and following, you know, therapeutic goals, that might lead to them needing medical stabilization. And so how that impacts treatment is a lot of times, you know, if they do need medical stabilization, it may kind of hinder the continuity of care when it comes to seeing a therapist and seeing a dietitian. There are absolutely a number of eating disorder treatments that do provide help with both medical stabilization and psychological stabilization, but I would say that, you know, for individuals that are having a hard time maintaining a healthy weight, that might, well, and oftentimes does extend recovery process. And so from my perspective, when it comes to therapy, I think if the client is willing, motivated, has a strong support system, typically their healing process is supported by those protective buffers and it will take them less time to heal. And I absolutely have seen growth, you know, as early as three to six months. But for others, you know, it it may take years. And, and for those that I have seen really struggle with recovering, a lot of times it is because they are either continuing to live or have active contact with family or individuals that don't support eating disorder recovery. They may not have the resources or the funds to continue to provide them with a proper level of care. And part of it also may be that they aren't being treated for co-occurring issues such as substance abuse and some of the other issues that I had talked about before, depression and anxiety. And so, you know, it is a complex disorder. And I think that that just speaks to how important it is to have a team such as a dietitian, a psychiatrist you know, a therapist and hopefully a medical doctor that understands eating disorders from this lens to provide that individual with proper care, which will absolutely directly impact the length of their recovery. And so again, going back to this question, I would say that for individuals that do start to recover within six months to a year, oftentimes they have recovered in terms of physical and medical stabilization. But psychologically, you know, it is a a daily task for them to really approach food and their relationship with their body differently than what we're seeing, you know, in in the media in terms of thinness equating to beauty and and these beauty standards that really can reinforce eating disorder thoughts. Right. And-
0: the other thing I was wondering about, the general public when they think about eating disorders, I feel like the general feeling about them is that they're lifelong
1: disorders. Can you talk a little bit about recovery and what that looks like and relapse? Absolutely. Yeah. And when I hear the word relapse, I I think about how clients oftentimes will think about relapse as this like really shaming thing, you know, that if I relapsed if I purge today, you know, that means that I am not recovered. And this is 10 steps back. When, you know, in reality, it's not that simple. You know, I I think with eating disorders, again, this isn't a choice. It's not a decision to have an eating disorder. And because this is something that I think the general public doesn't quite always understand, it can be viewed as something that's lifelong and that, you know, there is no hope for eating disorders. And, that really isn't the case from my perspective. I've been treating eating disorders for nearly a decade and have worked in all levels of care, and I have seen people recover from them. And I think those people that have recovered are still trying to sort out and work out these really big feelings that we all have as human beings, whether that's shame or feeling anxious or feeling self-conscious or having self-doubt. So in other words, I think recovery can be and and probably should be treated as a lifelong goal, even if that person is not necessarily engaging in deep rooted eating disorder behaviors. But I, I would say, you know, from my perspective, I think the hope is that if they are given the correct professional help and have the appropriate social support at home, and they're committed to being in their lives and in their body, that eating disorder recovery is absolutely possible and doesn't necessarily have to be a lifelong zigzag road for every individual. I think part of the issue with individuals that do have kind of this complex path to recovery absolutely could be systemic barriers, you know, whether that's receiving the proper treatment that, you know, truly specializes in eating disorders you know, that they're being treated for their co-occurring disorders, and also that they have the means to access these resources, right? Do they have the insurance that's going to provide the appropriate level of care? Do they have the funds to pay for extension of support, you know, whether that's working privately with a therapist, a dietitian, but because of that medical complexity, I would say that long-term care is needed, but I would argue that it's not necessarily going to be a lifelong journey for every individual. Okay. The other
0: question I have, you know, I see mainly adults in my practice and I have people who have recovered from eating disorders and they're now parents. And oftentimes this question comes up of kind of how to approach food, knowing that you yourself has recovered from an eating disorder maybe, and how to think about that and how you approach the idea of food and diet with your own children, especially adolescent female children. Would parents ever ask you kind of for some advice on that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and one thing that I, I will just have ringing in my ears in terms of what I've learned from dietitians is that children... Are actually the most intuitive eaters. Like when we look at just kind of how we're programmed, that as young children, we tend to be very, you know, again, mindful and intuitive about when we feel full, how much to eat, when to stop, when to slow down, which I think is really important to explain to parents that are afraid that, you know, it's Halloween. I don't want them to eat their whole basket of candy tonight. (laughs) How do I approach that? I think with looking at food in moderation, and reminding ourselves that we all kind of have this inner intuition, children included as well as adolescents, that that can be kind of in the in the background hopefully, you know, of parents mind that it's not all about being the perfect parent and that probably would be impossible, but really looking at what we can do to honor that child's intuition by having conversations about food that really debunk this idea that food is either good or bad, but that food is fuel for the body. And, you know, having that be explicit, if you are seeing that your adolescent is wanting to diet, you know, really asking them what that means and and what is motivating them behind that. And then really, of course, being conscious about the parents own relationship with food. And, you know, if that needs to be kind of dived into again, and if they need support around that, I think that could always be something that they either do individually with their own therapist, or that they do kind of collaboratively rather with a dietitian or with a therapist in session. But I, I would say that those are two big, important pieces, you know, really explaining and, and reminding parents that children are intuitive eaters. And then to examining one's own beliefs, and thoughts about food that might be impacting behaviors that kids may be learning, you know, at home.
0: Yeah. And it makes me think it would be great to have even a a longer talk about intuitive eating because that's a whole nother topic, which is fascinating as well and really important. I think the listener probably has learned quite a bit about therapy and eating disorders. If someone is interested in seeking out help for themselves or someone they know or they care about, where would you kind of suggest them to start in terms of thinking about treatment or therapy? Of course, we're going to have your website on the episode description, but are there some really good resources that you tend to recommend to people?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. There are quite a few organizations out there that do provide um, referrals for professionals that treat and specialize in eating disorders. I would say that if this is a loved one seeking support for their loved one, that if, if they are questioning whether they are at a stable weight, or if they believe that they're engaging in purging and binging, that really is, you know, a daily or weekly behavior, I would suggest that they seek either hospitalization or residential treatment. And a really good resource for finding different treatments in your area would be looking at organizations such as FindEdHelp, IADEP, Anita, which are websites I can provide you and and have for the listener, as well as looking at psychology today. These are some great resources to really look at who is out there in the community providing eating disorder resources and therapy. With the current pandemic, there are also some virtual options which looks like virtual PHP and virtual IOP programs.
0: Those are intensive programs. Sorry, the listener might. So IOP or PHP are intensive programs. Yeah. Sorry.
1: No, no problem. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. So looking at virtual intensive outpatient programs and virtual partial hospitalization programs can be a really nice way to really treat eating disorders from the comfort of one's own home. And with that being an option with the pandemic, the value of that is your dietitian can see from your video screen, you know, are you having enough to eat? You know, is this a balanced meal? And then your loved ones can get on board too, because, you know, chances are they're home quarantined with you, so to speak, too. So those are definitely some of the resources I would recommend.
0: Got it. Yeah. And we'll make sure those are added to the description so the listener can take a look at some of those options. Is there anything else you think would be really important for the listener to kind of have as a take-home message for the listener or something we didn't go over that you think is a really important component of this treatment?
1: Sure. Yeah. I think, you know, with looking at some of the warning signs, I would say that one thing that sometimes gets overlooked and it could be with a teen that is involved in dance and other extracurriculars such as athletics that are competitive or that are very body and achievement focused, oftentimes parents can overlook exercising as being a behavior. So it is classified as a compensatory behavior. So eating disorders don't always look like spending hours in the restroom, you know, vomiting or purging food. Sometimes compensatory behaviors can look like spending, you know, two hours at the gym, or during their school practice for track or whatnot, and then coming home and, you know, putting their head in the book, trying to get their work done. And before you know it, they're skipping dinner, and they're just either not eating or, you know, throwing down a protein shake. And the parents sometimes can view this as them being very achievement-oriented and sometimes may praise these behaviors, when in fact they oftentimes can be warning signs that this is an act of, compensating for attempting not to, you know, to burn calories and to manipulate their weight and whatnot. So that is one thing that I definitely would want parents and loved ones to be on the lookout, especially right now where individuals are home and they're accessing things on YouTube and Zoom workouts and and you name it. I think there's access to exercise in a way that doesn't look as toxic as it could be if if you're not aware and educated about that. Right. That's a good point. We didn't really talk about that.
0: Other types of disordered behavior that, you know, could also be considered kind of under this umbrella. I mean, the other thing we didn't really talk about is just what is an eating disorder in general and what are the subsets. Do you want to spend just a few quick minutes just talking about that, just so the listener kind of has a structure in mind?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, in terms of different subsets, we have anorexia nervosa, which, you know, often involves. Restricting food, intense fear of weight gain, really extreme focus on body image, you know, avoidance around meals, obsession around weighing oneself. For some individuals, anorexia that also involves restricting and purging while maintaining extremely low unhealthy weight to the point of fainting or having heart issues, other organ issues, um having to go to the ER for IV fluids and whatnot. That's anorexia, kind of in a quick <laughs> two second nutshell. It's much more complex than that, but that is one subtype. And then we have bulimia nervosa that typically does involve binging and purging, and purging can involve vomiting food, but it also can involve compensatory behaviors such as overexercising, laxative abuse, abusing other you know, substances such as caffeine with the intention of manipulating weight. Sometimes compensatory behaviors also can involve body checking or other means of eliminating food. And then we also have binge eating disorder that involves binging without the purging behavior. And so that's what would make that different than bulimia. And then we also have atypical anorexia, as well as avoidant restrictive food intake disorder that may not necessarily involve an obsession around body or an obsession around calories or a intense fear of weight gain. However, they still may fail to be at a healthy weight. And that is related to not consuming an appropriate amount of food. And so oftentimes people with that ARFID subtype may actually explain, well, I don't have an eating disorder because I want to gain weight. However, there are still some psychological facets that are similar to anorexia nervosa, and the treatment approach may look similar to how I approach other eating disorders. Okay, Well, that was very informative.
0: I really appreciate it. And it seems like if someone's concerned about, you know, whether or not they have an eating disorder, that, you know, the best thing to do is maybe to talk to a professional about their symptoms and help kind of guide them into thinking if this is a maladaptive behavior that's unhealthy versus kind of within the normal range of healthy eating or behaviors. You're a great resource to have. So I appreciate it and appreciate hearing more about
1: it. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much. I definitely enjoyed discussing eating disorders with you. And I hope that this is helpful for individuals listening and wanting to learn more. Yeah. Well, thank you
0: very much, Dr. Barreto. We'll see you soon. Take care.
1: Thanks so much. You did the
0: same. This has been Mind Stories. With remote appointments in California and offices in downtown Los Angeles, Santa Monica, Formosa Beach, Marina del Rey, and Echo Park, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thank you for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe.